Our text today, I believe you guys have been going through Acts just for a few weeks now, right? Just, just a couple. Um, by the way, I also got to say this. You guys record these sermons, and if you're ever sitting there like, why do we record these sermons? I'm one of the reasons. I listen to your guys' sermons most weeks, and that's before I was going to preach. I just do it for my own kind of edification. So um, I've been following along uh, well before I was even going to come here. But uh, Acts 21 uh, has been a pebble in my shoe the last couple weeks uh, since Cody said that was going to be the text. And so uh, my biggest hope today is that it becomes a, a pebble in your shoe as well. Um, if that happens, it will, uh, it'll be a good day. Not going to be a lot of answers today, uh, but we're going we're gonna to dig into this story. So before we start, um, may I say a word of prayer? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So uh, Acts 21, when we left Paul, he was resolved to make his way toward Jerusalem. And uh, a couple um, reminders here uh, in his journey toward Jerusalem. Uh, two lines I want to point out in, in chapters 19 and 20. 19 uh, verse 21 says, Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's going to matter here in a minute. Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then in the last chapter in verse 22 This is him talking. He puts it this way. He says, as a captive to the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And that's about to be answered for him, uh, not knowing what will happen to me there. So let's just jump off right in verse 1 of uh, chapter 21 here. It says, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. When we found a ship bound for Phoenicia, we went on board and set sail. We came in sight of Cyprus, and leaving it on our left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. Because the ship was to unload its cargo there, we looked up the disciples and stayed there for seven days. And this is important. It says, through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left and proceeded in our journey, and all of them, with wives and children, escorted us outside the city. There we knelt down on the beach and prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on the board to board the ship, and they returned home. We're going to dig into this kind of rising contradiction, it seems, a seeming contradiction arising here, but... Before that, I just want to make a note. I think it's interesting that Paul is relying on these trade routes to get around. Did you notice that? Um, I mean, otherwise, reading through the beginning of that, Luke's just given us great details about the whole travel log. That's wonderful. But think about the fact that, you know, Paul didn't save up and buy a boat. He's relying on these trade routes, and that's something we're going to come back to, too. But verse 7 says, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, And we greeted the believers and stayed with them for one day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, and we went to the house of Philip, the evangelist. This would be Philip, as in Philip and the eunuch that we read about earlier in Acts. One of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. 
this is a, a reunion tour for Paul. And it's going to continue to be. He's going to see James here in a bit in Jerusalem. I also just want to point out real quick, notice how Paul is always the guest in, the, in this story. And he's been that way through most of Acts, right? He's always the guest. And it reminds me of Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus sends out the 72. And they're, they're going to be guests. He sends them out two by two and he says, go and find the believers in the town and stay there. I, and his advice to him is, he says, I want you to bring your peace on the house. And depending on how it goes with them in the house, take your peace back with you. Um, or if they, it went really well, they were wonderful to you, leave your peace back with you. I'm still deciding if I'm leaving my peace, by the way, uh, Cody and Emily, but I'm probably going to leave it. It's been pretty great hospitality. But I just think that's interesting, and we'll come back to this too, that Paul is always a guest. In, chap- in verse 7, it says, when you end, oh, I'm sorry, uh, in verse 10, this is where uh, it's going to get a little weird. There's always that one guy, and there's this guy, Agabus. I don't blame him with a name like Agabus, but he's kind of an odd guy. Uh, he's a prophet from Jerusalem, and he's going to come and uh, give Paul some prophecy. He says, while we were staying there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us and took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands with it, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is the way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And here's Paul's response. He says, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, he remains silent except to say, the Lord's will be done. I love this little moment with Agabus. Uh, all week, for some reason, whenever I read it, I laugh at that part because this guy, Agabus, instead of just saying what he says, uh, this is going to happen to you, he's like, hey, could I have your belt? I got to show you something. And he, he asked for his belt. He goes through this. I'd love to see it. He's tying himself up in a belt. And I just picture Paul's face like, you could have just told me that. You, you could have just said the words. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but he does this to give him this visual image. He says, this is going to happen to you if you go into Jerusalem. So now, this is the pebble in the shoe. This feels like a paradox. We get two different times of Paul and the wording, as I read at the beginning, you can, you can look at it. In chapters 19 and 20, Paul being led by the Spirit, feeling resolved through the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Like, this is his destiny. This is what God's calling him to. And within one chapter, we have two instances of the family of God, brothers and sisters, also through the Spirit, saying, don't go to Jerusalem. One of them specifically urged him through the Spirit, it says, that we just read. Urged him through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. And then we got this Agabus guy who does it as well. And he doesn't specifically say don't go, but he does this uh, big thing with the binding. says, this is going to happen to you. But then the brothers and sisters there urge him again, don't go to Jerusalem. I know this is an idea y'all have been kicking around in here. Like, is everything Paul does 
is everything Paul does, what we're supposed to do, is it prescriptive, every little thing that Paul does here? And so here we're left with this, this paradox. And I'll, I'll just make your life a little easy for you. If you dig into this, it continues to be a paradox. You dig into Bible commentaries and all this stuff, it's a mystery. People throw out ideas, but uh, it, it remains a paradox. You can make the case in both ways. You could say, Paul's doing the right thing. Paul should be resolved. In fact, this little exchange we just saw where Paul says, hey, no, what are you doing telling me not to go? I don't know about you, but when I hear that, it, it kind of sounds like Christ saying to Peter when Peter says, no, don't go on to Jerusalem. And what does Christ say? He says, get behind me, Satan. He's like, I have, I have no time for that. I'm supposed to be going. It, he, Paul reads like Christ in a lot of this. And as we continue, he's going to continue to read like Christ. The, the story kind of sounds like that. But then at the same time, you could argue uh, the opposite. You could argue, uh, you know, Paul is doing a pretty lousy job. He, he, he has a revelation from the Spirit, but he's doing a really lousy job at listening to the body of Christ when they, through the Spirit, are telling him not to go. Uh, Luke uh, the author, this is one of the few times, if you notice the wording there, this is one of the few times where Luke puts him, his own opinion in there. Because he says, we. He only does that a few times throughout Acts. So Luke is here, the author. And he says, we urged him not to go. So you got this weird back and forth. Luke, the actual author, is saying, yeah, I was on the side of don't go. But then he writes the story in such a way as it's like, well, you're making them sound like Christ, like all these kind of mirror images of Jesus. So the question with this text this morning is, is Paul to be commended for his resolve? Or is he to be chastised for his stubbornness? How are we supposed to read Paul in this moment? And I think the much more important question is, what on earth is the Spirit doing here? What is God up to here, more importantly? Because on the face of it, it seems like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. It says the Spirit is urging Paul to go. And the Spirit is urging people to tell him not to go. You guys ever get this experience where people are kind of claiming the Spirit on opposite things? It, it happens a lot. It reminds me of, a, of church camp a little bit for me. It's like, the Spirit told me to. Sorry. Uh, I remember, it also reminds me, I don't know if this happened to you guys, but um, getting dumped by someone who's uh, saying, God, God told me to. Has this ever happened to anyone? This happened to me. It happened to me uh, in college. This girl told me, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, Nate, we can't be together. God's calling me to China. And I, it took everything in me to be like, you know, God's calling me to you and, and these <laughs> competing things. Um, and guess where that girl does not live today? Not China. Uh, <laughs> to my knowledge, she never went. But the spirit, <laughs> the spirit, th this happens a lot. It also makes me think of like, like football games. You got half the country praying for one team and half the country praying for the other team. Uh, Right, right, yeah. See, and I mean, I actually didn't, I didn't pray for the Chiefs a couple weeks ago, Kansas City Chiefs, because uh, they didn't need my prayer. Um, they did it, they did it without the prayer. But this is a real dilemma, and I, I think it's common to us, isn't it? 
I think we read scripture sometime and we imagine, oh yeah, when it says the spirit urged or they're doing something through the spirit, we just imagine it being so easy for them. Are, are you guys read the scriptures like that sometimes? It's like, oh yeah, the spirit just like, it's like an on-off switch just like said, hey, you're going. And they just had this resolve. But what makes these people any different than you and I? They have the same spirit same breath of God living in them, and they're having to discern day-to-day life the exact same way you and I are. We're going to come back to this paradox a little bit. Well, let's get Paul uh, into Jerusalem. How about that? Uh, If you continue to read, uh, Paul makes it to Jerusalem. He sees James and the elders in Jerusalem, and he uh, gives them a praise report. He tells them all the stuff he's been doing, and they praise God together. It's beautiful. And then very quickly, James puts on his uh, very practical hat, and he says, look, Paul, you're going to be in trouble back here in Jerusalem because your reputation is not good among the Jewish Christians here. And so they cook up this plan. There's these brothers that are going to go take a vow. We think maybe a Nazarite vow, but we don't know. But they're going to go take a vow. It's a seven-day purification rite. They say, Paul, since you look, you're appearing like an enemy to the Jews, you should go join them for this purification rite. You should join them, and that'll show everyone you're, you're okay. You're not an enemy. You're not here to threaten uh, their way of life. And so Paul does it, uh, and it says that by the end of it, the seven days he comes back. Excuse me, let me find the exact wording here. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, who had seen him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. They seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. More than that, he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, I didn't look up how to say that word, I'm sorry guys. Trophimus, the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And then all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together. So this plan that they cooked up together immediately does not work. Uh, he went through the seven-day purification rite, and it didn't, it didn't do anything, because it, it sounds like pretty quickly some of these Christians from Asia see him, and they assume that he's here as an enemy. They assume something about him. And this week, just a small little note again before we come back to this fun paradox that we're building up, but... I've been thinking about mobs, uh, this mob that forms for Paul, and thinking about the nature of mobs. How do mobs form? And I think I've whittled it down to to have a mob like this, mob mentality, we call it. It runs off of everyone having a small sliver of the story. A mob can't know the whole story, or else I don't think it would exist. But mobs form off of having a sliver of the story and jumping into action. That's how mobs form. I think our culture is really good at mobbing today. We're really good at this. I think, in fact, you and I are invited to mobs all the time. Uh, I think we're invited into mobs on this thing, on our phone. I I have this app, even. It's a mob app. Uh, You jump, it's a game. Yeah, you jump on and you... uh, are invited to go to war with people and share your opinions. It's called Facebook. It's a fun game. Uh, 
we're all invited into mobs on that thing. I mean, that's what that runs off of, is it not? It's, here's, here's a sliver of the story. I want to call you to action. Usually indignation is the action. It's a sliver of the story. It's dehumanizing. And I would imagine if we are causing enough holy trouble in this world like Paul does, we are probably going to be on the other end of a mob at one point. I, I don't think we should be surprised if that happens. I hear about the holy trouble. Cody's trying to get y'all in here. It's going to happen. Uh, and just take heart that they don't know the whole story. That's where it's coming from. And, and let's agree to pay attention to when we're invited into mobs because it's so easy. Verse 30, it says, They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. It says, While they were trying to kill him, so their plan is to beat him to death, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Immediately he took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came arrested him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what had been done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another, and as, if, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When Paul came to the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, away with him. Imagine for a moment Paul at the steps of the temple being beaten almost to death. We've seen this before. We've seen violence at the steps of the temple. His name was Stephen. Remember this? The first martyr. We saw Stephen get stoned to death in front of the temple. And where was Paul then? Paul was there, wasn't he? Paul was there watching. I could almost imagine if it was a movie or something, they would portray it like Paul here being beaten on the ground, looking up and maybe seeing a former version of himself signing on, giving his approval. This is a story. There's an author here, I think, to see Paul come full circle to this moment again, but he's on the other end now. He's now absorbing the blows. And then after he absorbs the blows as a new person, that last guy was Saul. This is Paul. He's a new person. This is what happens, and this is the end of our chapter here. It says, just as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? The tribune replied, do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 assassins into the wilderness. So uh, they were going off of a sliver of information. They even had the wrong guy. They didn't even know that, who this guy was. Mobs become laughable at a certain point. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. Cilicia, sorry. A citizen of an important city. I beg you, let me speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the people for silence. And then when there was a great hush, addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying. 
end of chapter. This whole chapter is the lead up to, put, to give Paul an audience, essentially. He gets to Jerusalem, and this is the crazy way he gets an audience to tell his story to. And next week in verse 22, or chapter 22, you'll see he, he's going to tell a story is what he's going to do. Simply setting the stage for Paul to speak is how this chapter ends. And I wanted to come back to this paradox. There's a reason I waited to the end to think about this paradox. Perhaps I should end just like this chapter and be like, and Cody will blow your mind next week. Okay, see ya. Uh, he'll answer the paradox for us. Not really. I, I want us to think about this stage that's been set for Paul, this audience. How do we understand these, these verses earlier? This back and forth of, is, is God wanting Paul to go? Is, is, Paul, is God actively trying to get him to stop going? How much of this is Paul's stubbornness? How much of it is his faith? Here's where, what I want to think about. I'm going to put it in terms I understand because I'm from Kansas. Uh, the yellow brick road. This is the good news of this passage. We don't serve a God who gives us one little yellow brick road. We don't serve a fatalistic God who says, hey, here's your one path. If you miss that path, ooh, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, you're, out of my, you're out of my will. You're out of my plan. If you miss this big yellow brick road, the good news of this passage, I think, and this doesn't answer the paradox, but I think it tells us what to do with it, is that God is too creative to put anything to waste. He's too creative to put anything to waste. He doesn't, he's not interested in saying, you have this one path, I really hope, I really hope Cody finds it. I hope he doesn't miss the path. Oh, he missed it, and I'm stuck because I had that one plan for him, I had that one path, and he messed it up. The good news of this is that God doesn't put anything to waste. So whether or not, say Paul is taking the wrong road, our God's creative. <laughs> He's going to author a beautiful story. He's going to bring these things in that maybe seem like wrong decisions or waste. And is that not how it feels to you and I often? I mean, the reason I wanted to wait till the end of the chapter is because I strongly believe that sometimes we get to see the story that God has written in the past tense. We get to look in the rearview mirror, right? And we say, oh, that's what God was doing. It's not always so clear in the moment, is it? If it is to you guys, I'm grateful for you. It's not always clear to me in the moment. This feels like a good decision, and this feels like a good decision. This seems like it has the cosine of the Spirit on it, and this seems like it has the Spirit telling me this. What I love about our God is that we often see it in the past tense. It reminds me of Moses uh, only being allowed to see the, path, the back of God as he passes by. Do you remember that? He's only allowed to see the back. Sometimes I think we can see what God was up to, and we can see how he's worked all these things into a story, redeeming things that might have even been a misstep. It might have been, even been a, a step off the yellow brick road, 
and he works it in. He's too creative to waste anything. Perhaps the rest of the story, I mentioned earlier how, you know, Paul really reads like Christ as you get, as you keep going. Like, just like Christ, he's on a way to Jerusalem. Just like Christ, he knows bad things are coming. Just like Christ, he goes anyway. Just like, and there's all this stuff that kind of parallels Christ. What if the stuff that parallels Christ here is by no virtue of Paul, but because Christ's breath is in that man and is shining through it? That's part of the storytelling that God's doing here. So I want to think about this for us a little bit. There's this wonderful uh, philosopher, Simone Weil. She says this uh, about the suffering in our life. She says, The greatness of Christianity lies not in a divine remedy for suffering, but a divine use for it. The greatness of Christianity lies not in a divine remedy for suffering, but in a divine use for it. How good news is it that if we do a misstep, say we, say we don't pick the path that the Spirit was pulling us toward, what if God looks at it and says, I can use that. I can use that. And you guys like jazz? Any jazz people? If you do, explain it to me sometime, because I don't understand jazz. But uh, I heard this awesome story uh, from a jazz pianist uh, named Herbie Hancock, a uh, popular guy. Herbie Hancock, uh, of course, was this young jazz uh, musician at a time, and his hero, you could probably guess if you know jazz, was Miles Davis. Uh, and so towards the end of Miles Davis's life, Herbie Hancock gets a chance to play with him a, a concert, a trio, I don't know what you call it in jazz, a set, a jazz set. So they're at this, uh, this concert hall and they're playing and he is playing with his hero. So Herbie Hancock's sitting there going on the piano and he's looking at his hero the whole night and he's like, this is such an honor. This is incredible. This is the best guy I know at jazz at all. Herbie recounts this time when he was doing this that was going through his mind the whole time how grateful he felt and he remembers he was so caught up in that that he accidentally played a couple of wrong notes at a certain point. And both being amazing musicians, he knows exactly when he's doing something wrong, right? He looks up at Miles, freaking out, because <laughs> he's just messed up their whole set. And he says that Miles, doing his thing, is it, did he do a trombone or trumpet? Yeah, my, trumpet, right? Miles Davis? He's on the trumpet. He says that you could tell Miles noticed the mistake, looked at him, and he says that Miles then went on to incorporate this wrong note into the song, and nobody could have been the wiser. Nobody in the audience would have been able to tell, because he worked this mistake into the music to where it actually made sense musically, where it made, even though it was out of key, he worked it into the jazz set and made it make sense. And Herbie says that at that moment, he realized, I am playing with a master. He felt this freedom. His stiffness kind of goes away. He's like, I can, make, I can play a wrong note, and he can make it into the music. He can make it make sense. Guys, we're playing with the master. 
in life. We are playing with a master. We're going to play the wrong notes, and we're probably going to do it often. <laughs> I do it often. Our God can make it make sense. That's good news. That's good news to me. I'm so glad that the God of Christ is not a fatalistic God where I'll miss the road. So even looking back at this passage, even in just one chapter of Scripture, we could see God using things. We could see him using the trade routes I mentioned. That's not, the trade routes aren't necessarily a, a part of his church, what he's doing, but he's like, I could use that, yeah. I could use that to get my, my word throughout the ends of the earth. Paul's stubbornness, right or wrong, <laughs> Paul's stubbornness, God's like, I could use that. These uh, Jews, I'm sorry, these Christians from Asia who are confused and start the mob, he looks at that, he's like, I could use that. Oh man, I could get my guy an audience right now to tell his story. I could use that. The soldiers who aren't, they're not a part of his system. They're a part of the Roman system. It's not a system that he necessarily speaks too kindly of, if you've noticed throughout the book of Acts. They're constantly, the disciples are constantly rubbing against the Roman system, these soldiers. God says, I could use that. And it doesn't stop there. We're talking about we're talking about the God who can see a sword and say, that'd make a pr pretty good plowshare. It's the God that sees a spear says, I bet I can make that into a pruning hook. And this is the God who sees a tree where our sin began in Genesis, a tree. A tree that eventually, because we are human, can become an instrument of death of a cross. And God can see that, even that. Say, I think I could turn that into an instrument for life. I could use that. So what I encourage you this week to think about, I love you, I, I dare you actually, I dare you to think about a misstep in your life. Might be recent or might be years ago. But think about a misstep in your life. What you think was you missing the mark. And if it hasn't happened yet, I dare you to think about how God might use it. Just imagine for a minute, and it's going to be probably more than you could ask or imagine, but just for fun in prayer this week, imagine Oh, I wonder how God's going to use that. I wonder how he's going to use that one. Our God is too creative to waste anything.